Well, it's good to be back before you again, standing here in this pulpit, preaching from our sermon series titled Saved For... Today we see our sermon is titled Saved For Obedience. Wow, what a tough topic, huh? My hope this morning is that our understanding of obedience would blossom. See, our Lord Jesus Christ loved obedience. Jesus, the most free person who's ever walked this earth, used all of his freedom in loving obedience to his heavenly Father. We are here this morning in the name of Jesus because obedience was central to Jesus' life. So may it be central to our lives too. Our sermon text is from the letter of, first letter of John, 1 John 5, verses 1 through 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If you want to know God, if you want to know his will, if you want to know his way, we must know his word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word to us this morning. Uh, it will challenge us, but it will also delight us if by your spirit you give us insight. So we pray for that. We are a needy people. Our hearts are quick to go astray. We need your word. We need your commandments. We need Christ and we need your Holy Spirit. We pray. Amen. Well, the disciple, the Apostle John, helps us to celebrate and ponder something spectacular this morning, and that is God has saved us for obedience. Now, when you hear the word obedience, what words come to mind? I mean, once you get the puppy training out of your head. I mean, when we think of obedience, our obedience as human beings, what typically comes to mind? Isn't it things like rules or drudgery or servitude or loss of freedom or hardship or perhaps even coercion. There is something about our nature as human beings that causes us to, to think, the less I have to obey today, the better. There's something about our nature that says, tell me what's in it for me, and if I buy into your reasoning, well then perhaps I will comply. There is something about human nature that despises obedience. Unless, of course, we're the ones in power, and then we can lay down the rules and enforce them to our benefit. And so, you know, for many outside of the church, the invitation to become a Christian is seen as a call to give up someone's freedom and blindly obey antiquated commandments. And so many don't even give Christ a solid consideration. But even within the church, we struggle with obedience. We know deep inside that we aren't the people that Christ calls us to be. We read our Bibles and we see all the commands stacked up high. 
though we seem to overlook the love and the grace of God that lies beneath every command of God. So some become judgmental legalists who pick up lists of biblical rules, the rules that, of course, they can do well, and they do them, and then they look in judgment on others who can't. But then there's others who look at the commandments of God in despair. They see all the commands, and they see how they daily fall short. They feel powerless to obey. But God shows us something in our passage. John says that those who are God's children are part of a victory that is overcoming this fallen world. John shows us that we have much to learn about obedience. He says that there's something about being in a relationship with God, that on the one hand, there are difficult commands to be obeyed, but then on the other hand, at the same time, his commands are not burdensome. How can this be? That's what we're going to investigate this morning as we see that God has saved us for obedience. We're going to divide our time into three areas. First, we're going to look at the difficulty, then the deliverance, and lastly, the drama. First, the difficulty. And the big idea here is that obedience is difficult for a number of different reasons. For starters, obedience is difficult because our obedience is often motivated by fear. Anyone who has ever endured boot camp in one of our armed services knows all about fear-based obedience. You know, when I was in boot camp, uh, you could flip a quarter and it would just bounce beautifully off of my bed. Why was this? Did I delight in making crisp and tight beds? Was I proud of my skills in bed making? No, I was scared. I was scared that if my bed wasn't perfect and pristine like the commands of the drill sergeants, I would have some drill sergeant yelling and screaming in my face to where his veins would be sticking out and his spit would be flying out of his mouth. So angry. So, during boot camp, I always slept above the covers, upon a made bed with clean sheets. That way, when I woke up in the morning, all I had to do was tighten everything up, and you can flip a quarter on it. My obedience was based on fear. Sometimes our obedience is fear-based. Employees obey the boss who says, if you show up late one more time, you're fired. Children study and get good grades because they are in fear of being grounded. Much of our obedience is fear-driven. And tell me, when your obedience is fear-driven, is it not also burdensome? Of course it is. So so obedience is difficult sometimes because it's motivated by fear. But there's another motivation people have for being obedient. It's a little bit more acceptable to us than obedience out of fear, but it's no less burdensome. It is obedience out of self-interest. I will study hard like my teacher commands so that I can excel in her class, and, well, she will write a really good letter of reference to some prestigious university I can enroll in. I will be the first to offer to carry the coach's bags when he asks for help in hopes that he will make me captain of the team. Consider all the times that you obey because in the end, you hope that it will benefit you personally. If you watch the History Channel TV show called The Vikings, you will see uh, that people are constantly praying 
and going through all of these rituals and sacrifices. Why is it? Is it because they love their gods, Odin and Thor? Is it because they want to bring glory to their gods? No, because they want things to go well for them. They're obedient to the rules of their gods out of self-interest. So fear and self-interest are two reasons why anyone obeys. It's how we're wired. It's how our world currently operates. And tell me, is this not burdensome? We work in 40-hour weeks for bosses that rant and rave at everyone, chewing everyone out for every little infraction. Obedience in such a work environment is burdensome. So too is being married to a wife who nitpicks and belittles her husband constantly and reminds him always of his downfalls and failures. Or so too the husband who treats his wife more like a servant than a beloved bride. Obedience out of fear is burdensome. So too is obedience out of self-interest. See, at the heart of self-interest is personal victory. You have in mind for yourself some victorious life that looks good for you that you want, and then you formulate all the rules that you will need to follow in order to achieve your victorious life. And you will gladly put in time obeying the powers that can open doors for you. But it is weary. You will obey the rules for success, but it is burdensome, full of uncertainty. Did I pick the right career? Did I make a mistake turning down that lateral promotion? Will that brown noser succeed instead of me? The world we live in obeys out of a combination of fear and self-interest. And, and we disobey for the same reasons. We don't fear the punishment of getting caught, so we disobey. Or we don't feel there is enough in it for us, so we disobey. I don't care if you ground me, go ahead. We've all said words like that, haven't we? We know the right thing to do. We even know that there will be consequences if we don't do it. And amazingly, we don't do it. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, uses this character flaw that we share as humans as proof text for the existence of God himself. Every human being, unless he's certifiably insane, has a built-in sense of right and wrong. We all have laws of right and wrong, of truth, written on our hearts that we affirm as good. Now, C.S. Lewis says the amazing thing about us as humans is that though we all agree that there are moral laws to be obeyed, we don't obey. Not that people disobey every command, every time. But why is it that all of us agree that there exist rights and wrongs that we readily affirm, and yet, if we're honest, we regularly violate them? Why is humanity like this? Here's an important theological truth that it would be wise for you to try to wrap your head around. In fact, it's the third and it's the most foundational reason that obedience is difficult. Let me describe it before I name it. Every human being is born a son or daughter of Adam. And because of this, we're born with a handicap so severe that it will keep us from God unless God gives us new birth that overrides our first birth. What do I mean? 
Imagine you were there when God created Adam and then Eve. Adam and Eve knew God. They loved God. They obeyed God. They enjoyed life without any hardship or anxiety or harm. Nothing was burdensome. They were made in God's image to reflect God's glory upon this earth, to be fruitful, to multiply, to spread His glory. Adam enjoyed perfect freedom. And obedience was not burdensome. God created Adam with a free will. And so when he was first created, before Adam fell, Adam had two abilities. If you're taking notes, he had two abilities with regards to obedience. One, he was able to sin. Though he had not sinned yet, the possibility existed for Adam to be disobedient, right? But second, and importantly here, Adam was able not to sin. It was in his nature to be able to not sin. But Adam used his freedom in disobedience towards God. And here's what hap happened to Adam in all the world since he disobeyed. Adam's nature changed, and all who were born after Adam have a similar nature. See, Adam was still able to sin, <laughs> we know. But now, instead of being able to not sin, he was now unable to not sin. In other words, he couldn't help but disobey, even when he knew it was right to obey. You felt that too, haven't you? My friends, this is the condition of every person born, other than Jesus, of course. Not only are we all able to sin, but also we are unable to not sin. We cannot help it. It's part of our nature that we share with fallen Adam. It is why you and I know the good things we should do, and yet often we don't do them. Now don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that you don't at times do right and wonderful things. Thank God people aren't sinning every moment of every day with every opportunity. No, but like C.S. Lewis said, the amazing thing that all human beings share is that though we know what is right and we affirm what, what, um, that doing right is good, we at times do not do it. This situation we all experience has a theological name. It's called original sin. Original sin does not refer to that first sin of Adam. Original sin speaks of the condition into which we were all born into. The situation of knowing right and wrong, but not having the ability to always do right and never to do wrong. This is how we were all born. And this, more than anything else, is why obedience is so difficult. That's the difficulty. Now for the deliverance. Here's the big idea I want you to grasp. God does not just forgive us our sins through his son. No, he truly delivers us out of our old birth in Adam by giving us a new birth in Christ. A new birth with a new ability to love God's commands and obey them with joy. Look at these amazing words in the first verse of our passage. Verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ, that's the Messiah, God's Son, has been 
born of God, has been born of God. The verb is perfect passive. Passive means it's something done to you, not by you. God has done something that you haven't done. He's done it for you. The perfect tense means that it's a once and for all completed event. For you and me to know God rightly and to love him and to desire the forgiveness of Christ, something must first happen to us. We must be reborn spiritually. See, we were all born sons of Adam, captive to our sin nature. We need to experience this special victory that somehow undoes all that is wrong. And this is what God has done for us in Christ. Everyone who believes that Jesus is God's Messiah, that, he, that God sent him as his son to redeem the world, everyone who clings to this truth, something has happened to them in order for them to believe this and to cling to this, and that is that they have been born of God. Like Jesus told Nicodemus, he said, no one can even see the kingdom of heaven unless he is born again. My friends, what... What we don't need is another self-help book. Seven tried and true ways for personal victory here and now. We don't need another TED talk, six secrets for unlocking the inner you. My friends, the last thing that I need to unlock is more of the inner me, the old Adam in me. The inner me is selfish, it is prideful, it is judgmental. The inner me plays favorites to those who can benefit me. The inner me lies to me about what is valuable. The inner me wants to present a fake version of myself to you so that I look good before you. You hear people say, well, just be true to yourself. Be true to myself. What a patently first world misguided mantra for up-and-coming narcissists. What I need most is not more of the old Mark Middlecoff barking orders to my soul. What Mark Middlecoff needs is more of Christ in me. And when Christ is dwelling in me and I'm abiding in him, he's not barking out orders like a drill sergeant. But yes, he is correcting me. He's guiding me. He's showing me where to go and where not to go. He's encouraging me. He is empowering me. That, my friends, is what God does for you in Christ. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born anew. God has given you new birth and a new power. The Holy Spirit of God comes to dwell in you. And he gives you Christ's very life inside of you. So understand this. Jesus didn't merely come to save you from your sins and to give you a get-out-of-hell-free card. Jesus came to conquer, to win a victory over the powers of this world, to undo the curse of that first Adam and give, and give this new life of victory to you. Jesus came as the second Adam. The first Adam failed. He disobeyed and all of creation fell with him. But Jesus, as Paul states, is the second Adam. Where the first Adam failed, Christ succeeded. Where the first Adam succumbed to disobedience, Jesus always lived in obedience. Obedience. Think about it. 
every waking moment of his life, every action, every reaction, everything Jesus thought and did was in loving obedience to his Father's will. Even in his death, Jesus' death was a free act of loving obedience to his Father in heaven. On the night of his betrayal, Jesus prayed three times. What did he pray? He said, Father, if it is possible by any means to take this cup away from me, please do it. I'm paraphrasing. What was he asking? He's saying, if there's any other way that mankind can experience true forgiveness, eternal hope, new life, welcome and adoption into our family, if there's any other way than me going to the cross and dying for their sins, can you just do that? Be the end of this prayer saying, but not my will, but thy will be done. The Roman soldiers did not take Jesus' life. He gave it freely of his own accord. Jesus used the freedom of the Son of God to lovingly obey his heavenly Father. My friends, understand this. Yes, Jesus went to the cross because he loves sinners and he desires to save. But know this, Jesus' greatest motivation for going to the cross was his, was his love for his Father and his desire to love him through obedience to him. And it's because of Jesus' obedience, even unto death, it's because of this that you and I may be born anew and experience this deliverance and this victory. Christian, please understand this. If you get nothing else out of my sermon this morning, it's, please understand this. Jesus' victory freed you, not just from the guilt of the sin in you, but also the power of sin over you. Paul writes in Romans 8 that the spirit of life has set you free if you belong to Christ by faith. That the same Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in all who have been born of God. Christian, let that sink into our heads. God hasn't just set you free from the guilt to sin. He set you free from the power of sin. No longer are you in Adam and unable not to sin. You are now in Christ. And yes, at times you do succumb to sin, but you are now a new creation and you are truly able to not sin. You have power from God that strengthens you and guides you in righteousness. You're now able to truly love God with a pure heart. You're able to please Him. And yes, obey Him with joy. Christians, do we not need to start seeing our salvation a little more fuller with these deep truths that we're studying? If you are in Christ, you have been born of God. You are a new creature capable of living out the obedience that you now long for. So we looked at the difficulty and the deliverance. Now for the drama. One of my favorite old movies, and I'll show you how old I am, uh, is True Lies. Remember Arnold Schwarzenegger and Jamie Lee Curtis? Some of you guys are laughing at me. All right. Well, you remember the movie, or you can rent it. It's probably free somewhere. Uh, 
Arnold Schwarzenegger plays Harry, and he's a seemingly ordinary, boring computer salesman, seemingly. And Jamie Lee Curtis uh, plays Helen. She's a dissatisfied wife who begins a relationship with a man who says he's a secret agent, but really he is, well, a car salesman or something like that. While, while it is actually Harry, this, uh, this seemingly boring computer salesman who is the secret agent living a double life, fighting evil and overcoming sinister plots, Helen even gets dragged into one of the scenarios and, well, you just have to rent the movie to see how it all ends. I mention this movie because in some ways, okay, it's kind of a stretch, that is what the Christian life is like. We have seemingly normal lives, but we actually play active roles, listen, active roles in the greatest drama ever. God's dramatic victory over the evil of this world. God, in giving us new birth, unleashes in us a freedom and a power to overcome the world with him. Look at verse 4 and 5. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Our English word for victory is the Greek word Nike. Yeah. Or you get the, you know, Nike shoes and shirts and all of that. And the word overcome is the same Greek root word, but in the verbal form. John says that everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. Now, before you start asking for your mask and cape and directions to the bat cave, we need to understand what John is saying here by overcome by overcoming the world. The word world in this instance refers to the worldly attitudes and actions and, and, and values that, that are entirely opposed to God and his will for his creation. In, chapter, in verse 19 of this chapter we're studying, John writes, the whole world lies under the power of the evil one. Chapter 2, John wrote, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And he says, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride and possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. So here is the drama that the gospel makes you an active part of. You now live as a child of God, filled with the Spirit of Christ, to live in obedience to what you now know is right and good, not just for yourself, but for the world in which you live. You not only have a desire now to overcome the trappings of this world, but you also have the power to experience this victory. If only as Christians we could see our lives this way. If only we could understand that we're not the same people that we used to be. We are born of God and we're called to live our lives in this great drama of redemption. Some of you might be asking, but what if I try and fail? You know, I, I, just, I try to be obedient, and I still give in to sin. John addresses that in chapter 2, verse 1. Here's what he writes. Listen, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. 
That is the drama. God gives us new life, one which frees us so that we actually can obey his commands. And when we fail, we have Christ as our advocate. And because our obedience isn't out of fear, nor is it out of self-interest, but instead, since our obedience is out of love, God's commandments are not what? Burdensome. Did you notice that John doesn't write, and his commands are not difficult? That'd be a little bit nicer, wouldn't it? But he says that his commands are not burdensome. Why? Why, does he, why, did, why doesn't he write that his commands are not difficult? Because God's commands are often hard. They often require great sacrifice. But when God's love has captured your heart and affections, his commands may be hard, but they will not be burdensome. See, the problem isn't that our, our, our loving God's commandments are too hard. What is the problem? The problem is that our hearts are too hard to the love of God. And hence, we don't obey. Let me ask you, when you love somebody, I mean really love someone, is it a burden for you to serve them? Do you think it a waste of your freedom to devote yourself to someone you deeply love? Of course not. You know, this last Friday night, my wife Leslie was exhausted, and so I volunteered to take two of my three kids to the ice skating rink in Southampton. And when I came back, she was napping on her bed, and she looked up kind of sleepily at me and said, would you just please wake me up at nine so I can go pick up the girls? Okay. At nine o'clock, I came in and smiled at my sleeping wife and dragged my weary body to the car and picked up my two daughters. Now, I'm not telling you this so you think I'm the world's most number one dad. I assure you I'm not, or husband. Rather, I wish to illustrate how my love for Leslie motivated me to obedience. Obedience, you say? Is there a verse in the Bible that says husbands are to drive their kids on Friday nights to overpriced ice skating rinks? It was 40 bucks for two kids. They're not going this Friday. I'm going to spray down the down the driveway some water and let it freeze all right but does the bible say that men are to to do things like drive their wives uh, drive their kids so that their wives can sleep no but what does the bible say the bible does say that men are to love their wives like christ loves the church and gave himself up for her. I don't know about you, that is a hard command. When I asked Leslie's uh, father for her hand in marriage, I said, uh, first I lost to him in a, in a game of racquetball and, and, and so I didn't get to ask for her hand in marriage. But then I asked like legit and, and I said, you know, Mr. Schmidt, I, I, I want your permission to marry your daughter. And you know what he said to me, Mark? You have my permission, so long as you promise to love her like Christ loves the church. And I said, yes, sir, I'm glad to do that. So a day later, I realized that's impossible. I cannot love my wife like Christ loves the church. But I can desire it because God is now alive in me, 
And I do have the power to overcome the temptation to not love her because God has given me new life. Christian, this is what the Christian life is about. It's about being set free from the old Adam and given new life in Christ so that we truly do want to love God and love our neighbor and obey him. And we do have the power to do that. And when we fail, we have a Savior who is our advocate. Christian, listen closely. Every time, out of love for God, you say no to sin and yes to righteousness, you have swung a hammer in a victory greater than Thor himself. You have flown faster than a speeding bullet, exhibited, exhibited more power than a steaming locomotive. How is this so? Because you are living proof that Christ's victory over the evil powers of this world has come upon your life too. You've been invited into a drama of cosmic redemption. You've been set free from your old life so that you can live this way. What a calling. Last week, my wife, Leslie, and I, we sat on the beach. As we're sitting there, we watched five pelicans descend from high up and swoop down in single-file fashion as if they were playing follow the leader. And these pelicans, which, which aren't the most graceful birds, these pelicans, they all flew down within inches of the surf as it began to roll onto the beach. And I said to Leslie, I said, you know what? I think they're doing that because they enjoy flying. <laughs> Imagine one day if you awoke with a new ability to fly. Would you not use all the freedom that you had and the time at your hand to fly, if he could, if he had this ability? How much more so this new ability God has given you? Power not just to know right and wrong, but power and ability to actually do what pleases your heavenly Father. Each time you obey and overcome the world in some small way, you are participating in this great drama of heaven that has come to earth. Grace Church, oh, that we would see our salvation this way. That we aren't just saved from our sinful past, we're saved for a new way of living today. I want to close by pointing out one final truth in a short little story. This truth is all over our text. It's the relationship, if you haven't picked up on it yet, between love and obedience. Our motivation for obedience isn't fear nor self-interest. Our motivation is love. Now, there's a handout in your bulletin where there's a list of 40 motivations for obedience. They, Kevin DeYoung came up with them. You don't have to go to it right now. There's 40 of them. But I would say the greatest of them all, uh, the greatest motivation for us to obey God is love of God. So I want to finish this with a story that illustrates this, the relationship between love and obedience. The story comes from a, from a blog post by Ed Welch. Uh, some of you know him. He's a professor of counseling. He's an author. We have one of his great books on our book table back there. It's titled, When People Are Big and God is Small. I recommend it. Here's a story that he told on his blog. Listen. Jack, our two-year-old grandson, was over the moon. 
his go-go, my wife, <laughs> was coming to the house that morning after having been away with me for a week. Jack was standing watch at the window. He loves his go-go. When she finally arrived, his pent-up love could no longer be restrained. He took his mother by, his, by the hand. He ran over to be picked up by his grandmother and gave them both a maximum embrace. Now came the challenging part. He had expressed his effusive love in a physical way, but that wasn't enough. He wanted to speak about his love. For Jack, when something important is on his mind, he typically comes, it typically comes out haltingly. But there was no halting when he said, I will never go out into the street without an adult ever again. These words he determined were the perfect complement for his physical affections. And indeed they were. And then Welch quotes, this is the love of God to obey his commands. And his commandments are not burdensome. Love and obedience for Jack were coterminous. I love you so much, and I will never go out into the street without an adult were different words for the same desire. His delight in obedience was the most profound expression of love that he could ever imagine. He was not trying to avoid punishment. That kind of obedience cannot be found within love. He was not trying to garner privileges. That too would have been selfishness, not love. Both are versions of legalism. And he goes on to say, if only we grown-ups could rehabilitate our understanding of obedience so that it squares with God's intent. For example, a married man could say to his wife, I love you. Better he could, he could say, today I will run from pornography or flirtatious imaginations and I will remember how important this relationship is to me. This is the adult version of not going unaccompanied into the street. Ed Welch hits the nail on the head. Love and obedience are coterminous. They belong together. So let us be challenged this morning. As we approach the Lord's table in just a moment, let us come confessing any deficiency in our obedience to our Heavenly Father's good commands. And if we are lacking in obedience to God, is it not true it's because we're lacking in love for Him? And so as you hold the bread and the cup, take time to ponder God's unconditional love for you. And then tell God how much you love Him. Not, not the things He does for you, not the things He's bought for you or given to you or promises you. No, tell God you love Him. And then tell them again and again. And then as you state your love for God, state also your loving desire to obey Him. Be particular. Speak of him as, to Him of some particular sin pattern that exists in your life right now. And thank God for the power that He's given you in Christ to not sin. And commit to obey God in this one area by His grace. And remind yourself, this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, where would we be without you and your word? The drama of redemption is far greater than we have eyes to see. But your word shows us that in Christ we have been born into this family that's part of this drama of overcoming this world. We long for that. We're thankful that you have brought us into this reality. We confess we feel unworthy. We confess we've strayed. But we also confess that you are the God who draws your children back, restores in love, and empowers by grace. May you have your way with us this morning, we pray. Amen.